The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to the regular podcast, Capital Weekly's regular podcast. I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hello. And our special guest, Carl Gardino, president and CEO, or CEO and president of the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, which has, I think, about 350, 360 members down in the uh, ever-popular Silicon Valley. You're a San Jose man, born and bred, by the way. Um, and that noise you hear in the background uh, is not Tim and I singing. That's, I don't know who that is playing back there, but we are in the Ambrosia Cafe about a block from the Capitol across, across L Street. Maybe some one of our listeners can activate Shazam and tell us who this actually is. Yeah, they can filter it out. But uh, Carl, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, two of the big issues, I know there are three you mentioned, transportation, housing, and education. Uh, transportation, I just realized this is your fourth four-year, consecutive four-year term appointed to the California Transportation Commission, which is kind of a big deal up here. Um, what are your transportation priorities for the Silicon Valley, specifically for, for your group and for your area? John and Tim, it's a, it's a pleasure to sit down with you here at Ambrosia. And I'm glad you mentioned transportation, housing, and education. At the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, our 350 member company CEOs refer to those as the issues. The, T for transportation, H for housing, E for education, that have the biggest... I love stuff like that. T-H, now I know. Okay, well, I'll never forget it. Go ahead. I'm big on acronyms. <laughs> Helps me remember. But yeah, the those issues truly impact the future of the innovation economy and all aspects of California's economy. And we need to do a much stronger job of building bridges to find successful solutions to those challenges. You specifically mentioned transportation. At the leadership group, we've actually run, funded, and led seven different local and regional transportation funding campaigns in just my time as CEO over the last 23 years. Those alone are generating more than $30 billion in local revenue, let alone the regional, state, and federal matches that you also, you often draw like a magnet to match those funds. But we want to think more boldly, so we're working right now with our with our sister organization, SPUR, which is 112 years old, based first in San Francisco and now what throughout the Bay Area. It used to have a name, and now they only go by SPUR, but what they're known for kind is... Like art. Right. They used to be another, their ARP. Yeah, AARP, is, yes. So SPUR has been around 112 years, and they're a land use planning organization that more and more is combining their uh, amazing research, data, and planning efforts with advocacy. Uh, so SPUR and our friends at the Bay Area Council, as well as the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, have been pulling together partners since 2016 of what can we do that would truly be transformative for the Bay Area and beyond in terms of our commute. Think of what LA did in 2016 with a permanent one penny sales tax that in its first 30 or 40 years they think will generate $120 billion for transportation improvements. What Seattle did also in 2016 
with a measure that will generate about 45 billion in improvements. Is there any shot of the uh, of the high speed rail of the bullet train going to uh, going to Silicon Valley with the spur to the you know, north the and south? Today, I know it's always been talked about, and then it's on, then it's off, and then there's an issue about whether the the program can actually continue. What with the feds and all this stuff. So where are we on that? Yeah. Are we anywhere on that? Yeah. And High-speed rail. Governor Brown had an audacious vision. Governor Newsom, who is known for his audacious vision on so many fronts, has combined vision with fiscal reality. And that's why in his State of the State address, uh, he mentioned three elements that were absolutely moving forward, uh, which they were kind to brief us about before the speech. One, make sure that that... Central Valley connection on which the federal funds of about 3.3 billion were based and and actually deliver more. Uh, that agreement with the federal government was for 115 miles of track within the Central Valley and he said let's do 161 to go from Bakersfield to Merced. So that was one. Two, uh, he said let's move forward with the EIR for the entire system as planned. And that isn't inexpensive. That's an investment of about $1.7 billion on its own for that EIR. Yes. And then the third part was we're going to keep our word on, uh, on the improvements to, uh, to and around Union Station in L.A. and on the Caltrain commuter rail corridor, which is so wonderfully used along the peninsula in Silicon Valley and San Francisco area. So you really propose three things. And that alone will take those three steps, the 12 to 15 billion that we currently have in hand. Is that state money that you have in hand, or federal money that's in hand, or a mix, or how does that work? Uh, as you knew, as you know, the high uh, the high speed rail bond uh, in 2008 was for 9.95 billion. 9 billion went to the High Speed Rail Authority, 0.95 billion went to the California Transportation Commission for connectors to the eventual high speed rail system. Uh, that's where we took 106 million of 950 million that I helped lead for the electrification of Caltrain in that Caltrain corridor between Santa Clara, San Mateo and San Francisco counties. And that money came in, right? That money was has it been spent yet? But it did come in. Yes, the, the, the bond passed by California voters in 2008, $9.95 billion, that's being allocated and used. And then there was the federal funds that came in, roughly $3.3 billion. Um, and now that's, uh, that was the foundation to move forward. But when you're talking about a project that's roughly $80 billion to do the whole thing, you have to think about what you can do. And that's where Governor Newsom, we thought, was wise in picking those three component parts that I mentioned earlier. Uh, and then what are we going to do with funding in the future? We have cap-and-trade funds that, as you know, annually some of the cap-and-trade funds, 25%, are currently allocated towards high-speed rail. Uh, will the legislature and the governor continue that level of funding in the future? Will we ever draw other local, regional, state, or federal funds? And will the private sector step up? Those are all the questions that gave the governor pause uh, between that mix of being visionary combined with common sense to meet the dollars and cents that you actually have. Is the, is the um, whenever I hear the word federal and then I hear the word funding, I'm always 
thinking there's a confrontation here somewhere. And just recently, there was clearly from the Trump administration the desire to freeze funds or block them. Going forward, while Trump is president, is there any expectation that we'll get some serious funding on this on, for this project, or actually for any other transportation project? Uh, and that's always a fair question when we're blending the world of sound policy with politics. Uh, sound policy, an example that could give hope. Uh, it was two years ago, working with Senator Feinstein, as well as now Speaker Pelosi, Jackie Speer, Anna Eshoo in the peninsula, that we collectively secured about $675 million from this federal government to finish our funding towards the electrification of that Caltrain commuter rail system. How did system. you pry that loose? How did you get money? How did you get that dough out of this administration? Or do you want to say? There are some great stories, but only I'll a couple that I can share. But here is one, and God bless Senator Feinstein, our senior senator, uh, and showing her effectiveness that uh, that an ability to work in a bipartisan fashion can bring around. Uh, we had been working for 20 years to cobble together the $1.98 billion to fully fund the electrification of the Caltrain commuter rail system. The federal government role was about $675 million, and we ran into a buzzsaw with then uh, Congressman Jeff Denham uh, convincing his allies from the California delegation to, um, to not support an allocation of funds. Uh, based on his dislike of high-speed rail and conflating that with Caltrain, which should never have been conflated, but it was, and it created a firestorm that put our funding at risk. I, Senator Feinstein and I met in her office. She said, Carl, I need you to go see my colleague Orrin Hatch, Republican senior senator of Utah at the time, uh, because we need his help. Why? When you do big infrastructure projects, those, um, those improvements are often built around the country. And this it was and is a thousand well-paying jobs in Utah. Orrin Hatch now, what was kindly met with me. Uh, what he were worked they with the senator in, in and Utah? we secured the funds. Which, what was being built in Utah? Were they building the trains themselves or? Uh, yes, trains have numerous component parts. Yeah. And for Caltrain, as with any big transportation infrastructure project, uh, those parts and the services that accompany them can be built around the country. And a thousand of those jobs uh, were outside of Salt Lake. Uh, and Senator Hatch, with his great relationship with Senator Feinstein, working in a bipartisan fashion on the Senate side, helped make that happen. On the House side, the tenacity um, of then-leader Pelosi, Jackie Speer, Anna Eshoo, uh, was enough to win the day. And so what's the benefit? Electrification is going to take Caltrain service from 65,000 weekday passenger trips by when it opens in 2022, we're going to go to 110,000 weekday passenger trips, 80% more passenger capacity because of their tenacity. Why does electrification make that much difference in terms of passenger capacity? I mean, are the trains configured differently? There's more room or something? Yeah, good question. First of all, electrification means it's 97% cleaner in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. That's good for all of us. It's 17% faster. 
uh, all those are benefits. But the capacity enhancements are because uh, it, instead of being able to pull five train cars, you can pull six to eight train cars and you have that much more capacity. You can accelerate and decelerate faster so you can run service more frequently as well. Uh, and then you have to take the extra steps. If you're going to have eight train cars instead of five, you better have longer platforms or you're going to have a real problem from day one. Uh, you're going to raise your platform so that people can get on and off the train quicker and so that you're not spending as much time in the station. So through all these capacity enhancements that you can only do with electrification, we can get 80% more passengers on a line that is packed standing room only to the gills in both directions in the AM and PM commutes. Both directions. Both directions. Um, is the uh, going from transportation to housing yes. and recently we've done other interviews and those two come together transportation housing and sort of transportation hyphen housing those are considered in, in, in you know in, in a tandem with each other so jumping from one part of that to the other part on, on housing San Jose has very high housing prices um, but you've worked for affordable housing down there and that's still an issue now. I, the, the governor has made some proposals about getting more affordable housing in that in the area you represent, your group represents. Uh, what's the housing situation down there? I, the last I saw, a median house down there was eight hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars, and I thought I ain't moving to San Jose. <laughs> Uh, John, you nailed it. We actually, if I pulled a coin out of my pocket right now and I flipped it and it came down tails, T, transportation, or heads, H, housing, it's the flip side of the same coin and we never separate it. You don't remember that. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> it's not patented. You can have it. It's okay. not trademarked. Um, the, the truth is they are combined. And transportation is a frustration, housing is a crisis. When I speak with our 350 CEOs that comprise the innovation economy fueling the Earth's innovation, that is what could derail the innovation economy in the Bay Area. We'll still have an innovation economy, but whether it will be there as robustly uh, as it should be in our region is contingent on solving these issues. So you have an issue of employment, of bringing workers in, bringing employees in who would have difficulty affording the housing. Is there a different component to that? Yeah, the tragedy is the jobs that would be at risk in an innovation economy where jobs are mobile are middle class and upper middle class jobs because there will always be the rationale for the highest paying highest value jobs to stay in Silicon Valley. The jobs that you can move to Austin, Boston, Seattle, even Southern California, even New York, where a home price is so much more affordable, those are the jobs that we can rebuild the Bay Area and California middle class that are at risk because of our housing and transportation crisis. And you used my native city of San Jose, where I was born and raised, you know as an example. Jose? I do. Uh, um, but you can't get there because it's too congested. <laughs> and you can't live there because of the prices. The median priced home in San Jose today is $1.25 million. Oh, Remember this number. $255,000. That is your annual household income needed to afford the median priced home in San Jose. $255,000. And whether you're low-tech, no-tech, or high-tech, in terms of the type of job you have, 
90, 80% of the folks, if shopping for their first home today, couldn't afford that first home. So this is an existential crisis to the innovation economy. So, I'm sorry, go ahead. So, uh, SB 50 would address that. Do your members, are they on the same side? Is there a disparity of opinion on SB 50? Tim, I'm glad you asked about SB 50 because one, it does link the flip side of that coin with housing and transportation investment. Very much so, yeah. Um, but uh, also because it, it reveals how you have to make a difference on complex issues like housing. And we think it's the three Ps. It's policy, like SB 50. It's projects, like that specific um, specific development that might be ar- around a fixed rail trans- uh, transit station that still has to get approved through a city or town process. And it's programs, like our very innovative uh, Housing Trust of Silicon Valley that the leadership group created 19 years ago. It takes all of those. Uh, And I'm going to go quickly to the project side. Unless you win at a city and town council, you can have the best policies in the world that will still be defeated at the local government level in a variety of ways. And if we're going to expect local city and town council uh, members to make those tough votes, we need to stand up, speak up. Uh, with them. And so over the last two decades, we've endorsed more than 300 affordable home proposals in Silicon Valley in the Bay Area. When you actually go there and you're smart about it and you pull in people from that community to speak, so it's not outsiders coming in and telling a government what to do, we have been successful almost every time. And we've been successful where it's not downzoned in the process, so you get something, but you don't really get what you should be getting. Going back to SB 50, Tim, yeah, we, we're proud to support it. We supported and co-sponsored uh, Senate Bill 827 from last the year. predecessor, yeah. Yes, um, that lasted almost one hearing in Sacramento <laughs> before it was killed. Uh, so we were making progress. A little bit longer. So yeah, we got out of the first, uh, with only one no vote, we were able to get out of the first committee last week. So we're going to continue to support that in a vigorous way. Why? Numerous. First, it links transportation and housing. Second, we're making billion-dollar investments in fixed rail transportation improvements. And then we're the half-mile radius around those stations where we should maximize what we can get out of that investment, we're not. We have examples of single-family homes, big-box retail, parking lots being what's around those massive billion-dollar investments, and we can do better. So we've worked, we've reached out to these six fixed-rail transit providers in the Bay Area. Map with us. What do you currently have, half-mile radius around each of your stations or proposed stations, and what might we be able to do by working in a positive way with those cities and towns to maximize those investments that will increase ridership, reduce congestion by doing so on our streets, roads, and highways, reduce greenhouse gases, take out the stress in people's lives from these two, three-hour mega commutes that they're doing, uh, and have both jobs and housing closer to those stations. Is there any possibility of increased inventory of housing, increased construction, or making more more units available, or even a rent control issue, maybe at some point down the future, that's good or bad, but having more housing stock available? 
it, it seems like the existing stock gets more valuable each year, harder to get into. More people with a lot of uh, resources are able to get housing. But is there some mix there that's a happy medium? John, you, you, you hit you hit the issue right on the head. So think about it, Tim and John. Where were you in 1989? 30 years ago. 30 years was the last time since California consistently met its annual need of home production to meet the population of Californians. 30 years we've been digging a hole that has left us 3.5 million homes short of what California should have. Now, what happened in 1989 or around 1989 to get us off that track? Well, people would say it's gone further back than that, but that's been, it's been that 30 years since we've consistently been building those homes. And it's a variety of factors, but what it, what it leads to is a supply and demand problem that John just brought up that has made prices of the limited homes, rental or for sale, that California has that are crushing California families at all income levels. That's why it was wonderful to see this governor, who likes making audacious goals, state the audacious goal that he wants 3.5 million more homes just in the next eight years. Here's the challenge. Last year, 118,000 building permits were pulled in the state of California, and that was one of the highest years in a long time. That would take about 28 years to achieve what the governor knows we need to do in the next seven or eight. So to do that, you have to backwards map. We don't have enough construction workers currently in California. How do we make sure to get kids interested in a career in the building trades and trained in good apprenticeship programs to build the labor pipeline? Somewhere Robbie Hunter is listening very closely. (laughs) (laughs) And Robbie, we need you to work with uh, builders to have those programs. We need the materials. We need the logistics. This is a massive undertaking, the equivalent of a Marshall Plan, if we're really going to develop this. Mm -hmm. If we met the number of houses that we need, of new construction, number of housing units we need, uh, what would that do, do you think, to uh, the cost of housing and rental housing? On the natural, if it's there, the market forces come into play and we'd have a more balanced, is that the idea? Or would it happen? Any economist would would just reinforce this is a supply and demand issue. And the more that we can increase supply, but not just anywhere, everywhere housing, but again, housing that fits into building great communities, linking it with transportation, linking it with uh, sound land land use patterns. We don't need all 3.5 million built to actually see it start to impact the cost of rents and homes. Look what Seattle has done just the past few years by creating a more friendly environment for sound construction of homes. They're actually dipping the cost curve by doing it, and they're doing it in a way that's incredibly environmentally friendly while still uh, recognizing the economics of being able to build a home. Is there a big tunnel in store for San Jose They've done that in Seattle. Don't they have the big big boring machine that went underneath and did all this stuff? Aren't they doing that in L.A. right now? Yeah. Are they? Yes, and with the risk of making this podcast a very boring one, there is a lot of talk about boring. And the boring that's going on soon in, in downtown San Jose is the leadership group's work and vision uh, with key elected leaders over the last 20 years to bring the popular BART system 
into downtown San Jose. So the first 10 mile segment of the BART extension that we've run and won three different transportation funding campaigns to build, uh, to produce, uh, will be opening this fall. It will be linking the BART system into Milpitas and down and uh, North San Jose, uh, and then by 2026, by boring uh, under downtown uh, in a way that doesn't ruin the downtown in the process. It'll be coming to downtown San Jose, the Deardon Station, think SAP Arena where the Sharks play, and then on to Santa Clara. What's exciting about that is that Deardon Station will link BART, Caltrain, light rail, buses, express buses, shuttle buses, Amtrak, and ACE at that station. It will go, that service will provide, instead of the 17,000 passenger trips today into that station, 140,000 passenger trips. That's where Google is planning to locate 15 to 20,000 high-wage, high-tech, high-skilled jobs in and around that station transformative to San Jose and Silicon Valley, what we can do at that station and we can do when companies like Google are willing to invest here rather than locating those jobs in other states and nations. Well, it has absolutely nothing to do with what we were talking about except the word tunnel. 1967, tunnel beneath the earth. I can't remember the actor's name, but he was the guy that played Dr. No in Dr. No. <laughs> A band of people dig in China and <laughs> tunnel everywhere and they come up in a manhole in Las Vegas. It's a terrible movie, but I just thought I'd mention <laughs> I always think of tunneling as doing We've taken a lot of, of sidetracks on this <laughs> podcast, but this may, this be, may the, be the worst. The furthest sidetrack we've ever taken. This is a spur track or something they call yeah, it. Exactly. Um, the, real, the, the train of nowhere. <laughs> Carl Gardino, thank you very much. Thanks for your time. Thank this you, is John. great. Thank you very much for joining us today. Tim Foster, thank you. Thanks, John. And this is John Howard, and we will see you next time around. Thank you very much. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer presents Battle Beneath the Earth This is priority, double scramble the line They're crawling under us, I tell you Just like ants Was it a nightmare, or was it real? While we've been wasting billions up there They've been working down there where it counts Was this the scientific breakthrough our leaders could not ignore? Or was it a dangerous delusion. You might wind up in a padded cell along with Kramer. Why was this man pronounced a raving lunatic? They're gonna wipe right off the map. More than a hundred million will perish. Was it true that under our very feet a vast graveyard was being opened by the most brilliant mass murderer of all time? Warning. Anyone who cannot bear the abyss of hell, prepare yourself for Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer's Battle Beneath the Earth.